0: Happy New Year! This morning we're going to begin our study in the book of Joshua. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1. We first met Joshua in our study of Exodus as a young aide to Moses, who, according to Exodus 24, even accompanied Moses up on Mount Sinai. Later, when the Amalekites attacked Israel in the wilderness, Moses told Joshua to choose some men in other words, enlist an army, to defend against Amalekite attacks. Joshua won that battle, not because he was such a good general, after all, this was his first rodeo, but only because of divine enabling by the Lord. Later, when Moses sent spies to check out the land of the Canaanites, Joshua and Caleb were the only spies who came back in faith, saying basically, we can do this, we can take this land that the Lord has given us. Years later, when Israel came under attack by the kings of Arad and the king of the Amorites, it was undoubtedly Joshua who led the Israelite army to victory. And finally, as the nation of Israel is encamped on the east side of the Jordan River, just north of the Dead Sea in modern-day Jordan, the Lord himself told Moses to lay hands on Joshua and publicly commission him as the next leader in front of Eleazar the high priest and the entire community of Israel. And Moses did so. Not long after that, Moses died. And that brings us up to the book of Joshua. The events in this book begin in roughly 1400 BC. The book of Joshua was written to record the giving of the promised land to Israel in fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Promises passed on through Moses. Anyway, let's move on to the book itself. But first, let's pray. Lord, there is a lot in this passage that could be misinterpreted or misunderstood. Give everyone here this morning discernment to know whether I'm interpreting accurately. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start by reading verses 1 to 15. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. Now, before I continue on to verses 12 to 15, let me remind you of the story we covered in Numbers 32 about how the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had all conquered territory on the east side of the Jordan River in what is modern-day Jordan and Syria. Joshua will make clear that they must still send fighting men into Canaan to help conquer the land for their fellow Israelites. So continuing in verse 12. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you after he said, The Lord your God will give you rest by giving you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan, but all your fighting men ready for battle must cross over ahead of your fellow Israelites. You are to help them until the Lord gives them rest as he has done for you. And until they too have taken possession of the land the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go in, go back and occupy your own land, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave you east of the Jordan toward the sunrise. Now, I'm not gonna cover this passage from beginning to end like I normally would. That's because there's so much repetition and I would just be repeating myself over and over again. Instead, I'd like to make seven observations about our passage this morning. The first one is about inheriting the land that God gave, is giving them. In verse two, God tells Joshua, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place you set your foot, as I promised Moses. And in verse 6, God tells Joshua, Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Their ancestors, of course, are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In verse 11, Joshua tells the officers of the people, Three days from now you will cross the Jordan here and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Verse 13, Joshua says, The Lord your God will give you rest by giving you this land. We see this idea repeated yet again in verse 15. The idea of God giving them the land as their inheritance is repeated five times in this short chapter. Now, they didn't have highlighting or underlining or bolding back then. When they wanted to emphasize a point, they did it by repetition. So when you do personal Bible study, by the way, pay attention to words, phrases, or ideas that are repeated. The repetition may sound redundant to us, but repetitions are often there for a reason. In this case, the author is emphasizing the point that Israel's conquest of Canaan is the fulfillment of a promise God made first to Abraham some 600 years earlier. This promise to give Israel the land was the main theme of the book of Genesis and was repeated over and over again in Exodus numbers and Deuteronomy. God's promise to Abraham is one of the main themes of the book of Joshua, which is why it's repeated five times in chapter one alone. In fact, Out of 24 chapters in Joshua, 10 of them, chapters 12 to 21, describe in great tedious detail about all the limits of all the tribal boundaries and all the cities within those boundaries for each tribe. This is demonstrating in great detail how God gave the land to Israel as he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Second, The author is using all this repetition also to emphasize that the taking of Canaan was specifically by God's command. This is not about Joshua becoming a power hungry tyrant. The problem is that many people down through history have done terrible things, claiming God told them to do it. Take Muhammad, for example. Muhammad slaughtered hundreds of people, thinking it was at God's command. But there is no reason to think that the voice Muhammad heard was from God and not just a figment of his imagination or mental illness or even demonic. By contrast, Joshua had personally witnessed God's work in the plagues of Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. Joshua had witnessed how God miraculously fed Israel with manna in the desert for 40 years. Joshua was there when God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai and when God would speak to Moses at the tent of Meeting. Joshua had seen God work and knew the difference between God speaking and some random thought, feeling, or inclination. All the miracles God had done through Moses for the last 40 years, Joshua's close association with Moses all that time, and the fact that Moses himself commissioned Joshua at God's command gave the people all the reason they needed to know that God was directing Joshua as he had directed Moses. And God's directing of Joshua was later miraculously confirmed by the drying up of the Jordan River and the walls of Jericho miraculously falling down. The conquest of Canaan was not by a power-hungry tyrant, but was at God's specific command and partial fulfillment of his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A third observation is that God's command to Joshua to take over Canaan was a command specifically given to Joshua and to those under his command. It was never intended as a command for anyone else at any other time. And Jews understood this perfectly. Even during the height of Israel's power under David and Solomon, Israel would attack enemies on their borders, but there was never any attempt to create an empire like the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians. In other words, God's command for Israel to conquer Canaan has absolutely no application at all to any tyrant that might want to use this as an excuse to invade a neighboring country and take over their land. A fourth observation has to do with verse 5, in which God promises to Joshua that no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. Now, it is very important that we read this in context. Verse 7 goes on to say, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it from the right or the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. In other words, carefully obey the law of Moses so that you will be successful in conquering this land. Success in taking the land was conditioned on obedience. This is even more clear in verse 8. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Highlight and underline the word of them. If you keep the law, then you will be prosperous and successful in taking this land. In other words, this promise that Joshua and his generation would inherit the land is conditional. They must learn the law of Moses, meditate on it, reflect on it, and be careful to obey it. Then and only then will they be prosperous and successful in taking the land. The reason this is so important is because the book of Joshua becomes very confusing if we don't remember this. So, for example, if we just pull verse 5 out of context, you know, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. We're going to be very puzzled when we get to chapter 7 and find that Israel is soundly defeated by the city of Ai. Didn't verse 5 say no one would be able to stand against them? Yes, but that was if and only if they keep the law of Moses and obey God. Their defeat in chapter 7 comes specifically because one of the families rebelled against God's command and apparently conspired together to cover it up. As another example, we will find that later on Joshua will say that God has kept all his promises to Israel. Not one has been left unfulfilled. But then almost in the same breath, so to speak, the book will also say that Israel still had not conquered all the land. So how could all the promises be fulfilled if they still hadn't conquered all the land? Ah, but the promise that Joshua's generation would be the ones to take the land was if and only if they keep the law of Moses and obey God. God had indeed kept all his promises and gave them victory in times and places where the Israelites had been faithful to him. But God had also kept his promise that they would not be successful if they departed from his word. God kept all his promises. My fifth observation is also about God's promises in verses 7 and 8, where God tells the Israelites that if they obey God's law, They will be prosperous and successful. The health, wealth, and prosperity people rip promises like this out of context and say, for example, that if you are just faithful to obey God's word, and they often add to give more money to their ministry, God promises to make you prosperous and successful physically and materially. No, no, no. This promise of prosperity and success was specifically given to the Israelites regarding the taking of the promised land. It does not necessarily apply in all times and in all places. I mean, Job was faithful to God, and he went through terrible trials. Jeremiah was faithful to God, and he ended up being thrown into a muddy pit and taken captive to Egypt. Paul was faithful to God, and he was beaten, jailed, stoned, and beheaded. Jesus is the ultimate example of perfect obedience to God. And yet he was scourged and crucified. The Bible does not promise everyone physical health or material success in this world if they just obey God. In fact, obedience to God often results in hardship and persecution. The passages prosperity preachers use are taken out of context. My sixth observation is that the command to be strong and courageous appears three times in this passage. The command to be courageous is probably emphasized because the Israelites were probably afraid, if not terrified. Remember that 40 years earlier, they had sent 12 spies into the land, and 10 of them came back saying basically, strong, well-armed giants live there in well-fortified cities. We can't possibly beat them. So that generation rebelled against God. So God said, because you didn't believe me, you will wander in the wilderness 40 years. And Israel rebelled again, saying, okay, okay, we'll go. Moses said, no, don't do it. God has removed his protection. They rebelled and went anyway. And the result was a terrible defeat at the hands of the Canaanites. Now, 40 years later, They are about to attack the same Canaanite tribes their parents did, and they are undoubtedly afraid. So four times there is the command to be strong and courageous. In other words, don't let your fear get the best of you, which is what I think do not be afraid means in verse verse 9. The command is to obey God regardless of your fear. Finally, The chapter ends with the people's response in verses 16 to 18. And they answered Joshua, whatever you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them, will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. This was a loyalty oath. It was like a pledge of allegiance to Joshua, so long as God was with him. When in verse 17, they say, just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you only. May the Lord your God be with you as, as he was with Moses. I think that's kind of like saying, we will follow you as long as you follow God. Instead of pledging allegiance to one nation under God, they are pledging allegiance to one leader under God. And by the way, if they ever remove under God from the Pledge of Allegiance, I will stop saying it. Anyway, this was like their profession of faith in Joshua and the Lord. So what lessons can we take home from this chapter? I have just three this morning. First, I think the command to be strong and courageous may still be applicable to us. Follow the Lord, obey his word, and do what is right, regardless of your fear. Be strong and courageous, a command so important that is repeated four times in this chapter. Second, after the command to be strong and courageous, verse nine goes on to say, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Now, this is a promise given specifically to Israel in their conquest of Canaan, but it is still especially applicable to all believers today because we have the Holy Spirit living within us. If you are a child of God by faith in Christ, regardless of what you are going through or what dark trials you may be facing, the Holy Spirit of God will be with you wherever you go. That God will never leave you nor forsake you is a promise repeated in Hebrews 13, 5. And finally, in verse 8, God commands, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. The book of the law or the book of Moses was their Bible. They were to learn it, talk about it, meditate on it. Biblical meditation is not about sitting cross-legged and humming, um. Biblical meditation is to focus on a passage from God's word and ponder it. Think about it. Pray about it. Talk about it. The Israelites were commanded to learn what God wants by meditating and talking about God's word. They needed to learn and know God's word thoroughly. And this principle applies to us as well. We need to do the same. So how do we do that? Well, you're doing it this morning by being here. There are also opportunities to learn God's word better in Sunday school and in midweek Bible study. There, we not only study the Bible, we also meditate on it in the sense that we think about it and talk about it, talk about what it means and how it applies to everyday life today. I know some of you have responsibility or circumstances that make attendance at Sunday school or Bible study impossible, and I understand that. But for those who are able, I encourage you to make it a priority this year to get involved in Sunday school or Bible study or both. We live in a world that is increasingly ripping the Bible out of context and using it for very ungodly purposes. We need to be constantly grounded in God's word so we can be discerning and know how to obey God more fully in all the changing circumstances of life. And as you know, We don't obey God in order to be saved. We obey God out of gratitude for the salvation he has provided for us on the cross of Calvary. Anyway, the point of this meditation on God's word in verse 8 was so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. You can't properly obey God unless you know what God wants. And we learn that through constant intake of his word. Let's pray. Lord, in this new year, I pray that you would impress on our hearts the importance of constant meditation on your word and of obedience to you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.